Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Genesis 19, verses 1 to 22. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And then they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to, to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. My name is Wes. I'm one of the pastors here, <clears throat> member of our preaching team. The beauty of a preaching team is that usually Dale gets the weird passages. Here we are. 
And by weird, I mean horrific. We just take a minute and appreciate. I mean, <laughs> it's hard. It, it, it's it's hard to talk right now because my my stomach feels like a brick because of what was just read. We we value all of God's word, and we don't pass over even the horrific sections. Um, what a horrific passage. You know, when I first started to follow Jesus in middle school, for me, as a preteen, one of the best places for a young Christian preteen growing up in Longmont, Colorado, was the Lord's Walk Christian Bookstore. And somehow I never saw any of these verses on the Christian t-shirts or the scribed on a shark tooth necklace or a slap bracelet. I mean, this was not part of the stuff you could buy to wear your faith loud and proud. This is, this is one of those passages. It leaves a pit in your stomach. Um, but we're going we're gonna to dive in. And I want to encourage you, have your Bible open today. Uh, this is a good, a good day to be looking at, at the Word. I'm going to have some verses on the screen, but we need to set this in context of what's been happening in this narrative. We're preaching through this narrative that is, is the telling of, of this journey of faith that Abram, now Abraham, has been on. And I want to encourage you, if you've missed any of these, any of these messages, this is a good, a good series to go back and, and listen again. Um, we saw a couple of weeks ago when we started Genesis chapter 18, these three visitors come and visit Abraham. And our best understanding is that one of these visitors is the Lord, a, a theophany of God himself. And the other two are messengers, they're angels who are with the Lord, and they appear to Abraham, and Abraham receives these guests that appear to him simply as men uh, with very generous, honorable hospitality. He prepares a feast of his very best. He kills the young goat. He, he, he bakes a lot of bread. He brings out the curds and the milk, and they are feasting and reclining in the shade of a tree, and, and they ask about Sarah, his wife, and they use Sarah's new name, Sarah a name given to her by God. And this is our first clue that, that maybe these men are not just ordinary sojourners. Maybe there's something special. And then they begin to reiterate the promise from chapter 17 from God to Abraham that he will have a son. They reiterate that he will have a son, that Sarah will, will bear a son to him. And they, they add in, in chapter 18 the detail of when this will happen. They say, this time next year we'll come back and, and you will have a son born by your wife Sarah. And she is listening in the tent and she can't help but laugh because she's old enough that she's in menopause and, and she's never been able to conceive. And, and now these, these men come and, and declare that she's going to have a child and it is laughable. And that's where we get this line, this famous line from a couple of weeks ago, Genesis chapter 18, where, 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 where these men, they declare, is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. 
And then the three men set out towards Sodom. And, and Abraham is, is setting them out on their journey, as we heard from Zach last week. And, and, and they're debating about whether or not to share their plans with Abraham. And, and truly, they want Abraham to know the heart and character of God. And so they share their plans that they're going to bring destruction upon the cities of the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, in this moment of bold prayer, steps in front of the Lord and blocks his path, and he pleads for Sodom. He pleads and, 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 and enters into this bold prayer, and that was last week as we talked about our focus for the upcoming year here at LifePoint. Our focus is bold prayer, and Zach did a wonderful job unpacking these three principles of bold prayer. Go back and listen to it if you missed it. But just for the sake of reminder, these three principles are the posture principle that bold prayer has a posture of humble confidence. He stepped in front of the Lord and then he declared, I am nothing but dust and ashes. He was humble and confident. Bold prayer is rooted in the ground principle that it's grounded in God's character and word. And, and Moses, excuse me, Abraham goes before God, the Lord, and says, are you not the judge of all the earth? Will you truly sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? He calls God, calls on God to be consistent with his character in his word. And then we saw, too, the faith principle, the bold prayers anticipate with faith that God will either change something out there or he will change something in here. The faith and reliance that when we pray, God will change something. Now, we don't know exactly how this played out, but meanwhile, it seems that as, as Moses is, is stepping in front of the Lord and having this conversation, that the, the two angels have continued on to Sodom. And that's where we pick up today's text, Genesis 19 Verses 1 to 22, truly, like I said, a horrifying passage. And I, before we dive into this, I want to identify two dangers that we face as we look to a passage such as this. And I want us to be aware of this as we, as we dive in and try to understand what God has for us in his word today. The first of these two dangers is that we can become so horrified with the ugliness of Sodom's sin and Lot's response to it that we miss or downplay the horror of sin in general, including our own. We need to be aware of this danger as we look upon this passage that is full of the kind of sin that hopefully has left your stomach sitting on your shoelaces. The second danger is that we can become so focused on one particular pillar of God's character we see here his justice and his mercy, these two pillars of his character. We can become so focused upon one or the other that we actually can, can miss the whole of God's heart and character. It's easy to look at either his justice or his mercy and miss what God wants us to see and know about his heart. These are two dangers that we face with this passage. And with this passage in particular, we tend to either follow the popular lie that says that if God is loving, that he would never actually punish sin, or 
in the name of righteousness, and I do put righteousness in air quotes because this is not the righteousness of God, in the name of righteousness, we become hardened and unmerciful, usually with a heavy dose of religious legalism. This is where we tend to land as we look at the, what this passage reveals about God's heart and character. And as we'll see as we look at this it, in this passage, the, it highlights and contrasts the heart and character of both God Almighty and the sin that dwells on this earth. The sin of Sodom, it's used throughout Scripture as an archetype or an example or a model of, of sin in general. In fact, there's at least 27 other references to Sodom that are used in this way. Jesus himself in the Gospels often references the sin of Sodom. God's destruction of Sodom which we heard about in this passage, but won't happen until next week in the passage we look at there. God's destruction of Sodom is used also throughout Scripture as an archetype of his justice and righteousness that leaves no question about the impact of sin on this earth. So our question today is, what can we learn about both God and sin from this horrifying passage? As we see here at the beginning of chapter 19, the, the two angels arrive at Sodom. It says they arrive in the evening. And even though we're not sure exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah were, like physically on the map, because they were utterly destroyed, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where they were. Most experts believe that this would have been at least a 20-mile journey. So these angels have, have, have actually engaged a supernatural power to arrive the same day in the evening at the city of Sodom. Lot's sitting at the gate, which means that he had some kind of well-respected role and position within the city, even though he, he was not a native. He was a sojourner, an immigrant there, but he was on some level accepted by the locals. And he was there sitting in the gate when they arrived. Um, he, he offers them the, what you would expect in this time and place in the ancient Near East, the kind hospitality to a stranger on a journey to come into the safety and provision of his home for the night and, and the angels decline. And, and, and <laughs> I think Lot knows what may happen if they stay in the city square and he insists and so they do come into his home. And that's, that's where we, we pick up the story. Now, as I said, there's two layers here that we can see as we unpack this passage. And the first, the first we're going to look at is, is, is kind of trying to answer this question, what is the character and heart of God? What can we learn about the essence and nature of God from this passage? What is the character and heart of God? And the very first thing we learn as we look at this passage is, is we see that God is just. He is just. That can also mean righteous. God is righteous. These terms, just and righteous, in the Bible, uh, in English, they translate the same word groups, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So scripturally speaking, God's justice, his righteousness, they're the same concept. Um, this big picture concept is defined by theologian Wayne Grudem as this. This is how he describes God's righteousness. He says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard in what is right. 
We see this in God's word many places. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, All his ways are just. Isaiah 45.19 says, I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. We see this is true throughout Scripture. In this passage, though, as we look especially to verse 4 and remember Abraham's bold prayer in chapter 18 when he asked God to look and to make sure that there would be no unrighteous swept away with the punishment of of the unrighteous, we get our answer in verse 4. Look who shows up pounding at the door of Lot's house. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, All the people to the last man surrounded the house. The author takes great pains here to emphasize the reality that this is the whole town that has come out. Everybody has come and they are pounding on the door seeking to do this horrific thing. This is a snapshot of the nature and inclination of the entire community. And so we have here in verse 4 the answer to Abraham's question. Lord, is there not even for 10 righteous would you spare the city? And God says, yes, for 10 I would spare it. And he sends his messengers to come and they find not a single one is left righteous in that city. And as we see here, it's, it's hard to argue for Lot's righteousness as well. So we see that God is just. He is a God of His Word. And the the angels unpack this further in verse 13 as we heard read. In verse 13, they're telling Lot, they're pleading with him to go get anybody he cares about in his family, even though they're amongst those who were struck blind outside the door because of their their horrific demands. uh, they, They tell him to go get anybody and they say this, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry of its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. God is just, He is righteous. And and the outcry of the sin, the unjust nature of the sin of Sodom, it has reached the ears of their Maker. Now this echoes the language we see in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel in the field, and God comes to him and he says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. My friends, God is righteous and he is just. If you've ever experienced, (laughs) if you've ever experienced unjust treatment, know that that cries out to him. It does not go unnoticed by your Maker. His righteousness is so perfect that the existence of some unjust situation on the earth cannot escape his awareness. But that's not all he is. God is also merciful. We see his mercy on display vividly here uh, through Lot. And though he certainly doesn't deserve it, the angels go out of their way to save him and to save his family. Even his sons-in-law who were betrothed to marry his daughters who would have been among those struck blind outside his house. Lot goes to them. They tell him, the angels tell him to go to them. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. 
They are pleading with, with Lot, please, you have to get out of here. You will be swept away in God's righteous, just punishment of this city. You will be destroyed. And it says that, that they, Lot, Lot is like paralyzed here. He doesn't realize just how perfect God's righteousness is. And we get this vivid picture of the angels. There's two angels. That's four hands. The one angel grabs the hand of Lot. The other angel grabs the hand of his wife. Excuse me, the, the angel's other hand grabs the hand of his wife. The second angel grabs his two daughters and they literally drag them out of the city. It says that the Lord is being merciful to him. He should have left already. This is like a, like a special favor that, the, that Lot doesn't even deserve, but they drag him out. They don't want to see him destroyed in this city. They grab him by the hand and haul him out. It's this vivid picture of God's mercy. And then we also see another example of God's mercy here in verse 21. We have, we have, we have, this, the man Lot is, is, is outside the city. They've stopped for a minute and they've said, okay, you need to escape to the hills. Don't look back. We know how that goes for Lot's wife. That's next week. Don't look back. Don't hesitate. Escape for your life to the hills. And Lot is like, well, well um, actually, I don't prefer the hills. <laughs> I'd rather go somewhere else. <laughs> and this is a puzzling part of of, of the passage. Lot pleads for something else, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But in mercy, the angels grant him their request. Zoar was going to be destroyed as one of the, one of the cities in the valley, but, but they, they grant him this favor. They even call it a favor. This mercy is a favor. We see God is merciful. He is just and he is merciful. Now, remember, the danger. If we, if we allow our vision to see only his justness, his righteousness, or only his mercy, we'll miss the big picture, the heart of God that he wants us to see and to know. We have to see both of these pillars of God's heart and character. And we see this later on in the book of Exodus. This is, this is later on in, in the story of, of God's people. And this is with Moses. Moses has led God's people, the family, the promised family that came from, the nation that came from Abraham down the road. He's led them out of slavery in Egypt. This is hundreds and hundreds of years later. And we see here, God for the first time speaks his name. He reveals his name and then he unpacks his character. This is the first time God describes explicitly, this is what I am about. This is what I'm like. And we see the balance of, of God's mercy and judgment in the character and heart of God described here. And we unpacked this in more detail last spring when we did a series called In His Image that was a worldview series trying to understand what is God like. Listen to how God describes his character in Exodus 34 and look at this illustration of his mercy and his judgment. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's still just. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
We see this balance of God's mercy extends for thousands of generations. His judgment extends to the third and the fourth. It is still there, but we see that he is slow in, in bringing his judgment about because he wants his mercy to win the day, and we will see that eventually in the person of Jesus. So we see here this on display only in back in, in our passage in Genesis 19. We see that God's justice, his, it, it, he's been pushed beyond this patience, this long-bearing love to the point that he finally is going to exercise his justice. We see that. God is just and he is merciful. Well, what can we learn about the character and heart of sin from this passage? We've seen God's justice and his mercy in full display. What about the character and the heart of sin? There's three elements that we see in this passage. In the first one, sin operates with selfish entitlement. I don't know any other way to describe what's happening in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 19. Remember the, the culture of the ancient Near East. It, it dictated that it was a host, it was almost a sacred duty to provide and protect for anyone who has come under their roof. And at the beginning of verse 5, we see here that the whole town has come and is demanding that Lot set aside this ethical norm that they had so that they could fulfill their own selfish, sinful desires. They felt brazenly entitled to this so they could fulfill the wicked, sinful desires of their own flesh. And, and if, you, if you dig into the second half of verse 5, it's very clear, although the English is polite in how it translates, that what the townsfolk are demanding they are demanding Lot to send his guests outside the house to be forcibly and violently sexually abused. One of the most horrific expressions of selfish entitlement imaginable on the earth. And then later in verse 9, Lot refuses their demand. He refuses their demand and they move toward a worse treatment of him. This city is full of of, of a sin that expresses itself and operates with selfish entitlement, and it is horrible. Now, it is easy to see, to look at the sin of Sodom and assume that it is just the sin of sexual infidelity. Of, of sexual immorality, this, this twisting and perversion of God's design for sexual activity, that it be reserved for one man and one woman in a lifelong marriage commitment. It's easy to assume that that's the sin, but if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, we see the prophet exposing the heart of the sin of Sodom. Ezekiel says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. 
You see, in this passage in Ezekiel, we get the heart, the truly the root of the sin of Sodom is, is exposed. And I want you to note that this Ezekiel passage doesn't say anything about sexual immorality. No, and, and instead it focuses on the deeper roots that sustained the kind of sinful community that could justify the horrifying, violent sexual immorality that, that came from Sodom. We see arrogance. We see arrogance. Sodom, she and her sisters had pride. They were haughty. This is arrogance. We see arrogance combined with self-reliance. They had an excess of food. They didn't have to worry about starving. Fueled by a prosperity that lacked generosity. They were wealthy yet they did not give aid to those who needed help. They failed to demonstrate the merciful character of their maker with their wealth. This is the heart of their sin. Arrogance, self-reliance, fueled by prosperity that lacked generosity, led to this abomination of sin thriving. So today... <laughs> It's easy to be horrified by the fruit that grew from these roots. But I, I ask us together to consider with humility before the Lord, where is your life and my life? Where is your life marked with arrogance, self-reliance, and a prosperity that is lacking generosity. Sin operates with selfish entitlement. But sin also justifies itself with comparison and compromise. If we turn back to Genesis 19, <laughs> there is maybe the most horrific part of this passage. We see Lot... Lot knows that what they're asking for is wrong. He points it out. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, to the, goes outside, he shuts the door behind him, and then turns to the entire town gathered outside his house. He pleads with them. He says, hey, don't, don't do this wicked thing. Set aside your wickedness and instead do something that's somehow better. He justifies sacrificing his very own daughters to their wicked desires, somehow setting that up as a more righteous option. He justifies his own selfish self-preservation by comparing what he's, what, what he's committing, the sin that he's committing, and, and compromising the reality of, 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 of this, the, the horribleness of this sin. He justifies his own sin, his own selfishness, because somehow he can, in his mind, set this up as like, it's not as bad as what they're doing. <laughs> you know, we're easily horrified by what Lot does here. And I don't even have words to express how sick it makes me feel to think about 
what he is offering. But what are the ways that that you and I justify our own sin? Because we can find somebody else out there that is committing something, some kind of sin that's more wicked, more unrighteous, more horrifying to us. How often do we justify our own choices because there is something worse out there that could be done instead? Do I need to give examples? How many of you justify the use of pornography because you're not committing physical sexual immorality? How many of you justify the slaying of a friend through gossip or slander because you've never actually raised your fist to someone else? How many of us justify a, a, a lack of generosity because we can find someone out there who's more selfish than us? What is the heart and character of sin? It justifies itself with comparison and compromise. But that's not all it does. <laughs> it's difficult to escape sin's grip because it also grips us with a compelling deceit. Scripture describes Satan as the father of lies and ultimately at its heart, when we embrace sin, we are embracing a lie that there is something out there that is better than God's plan or God's design and we are gripped by this compelling deceit. This deceit, we, it, it, it finds its way into our thinking, into our emotions, into our hearts, and so we're willing to operate with this selfish entitlement and with, with this comparison and compromise that justifies our own sin. You know, if we look at verses 18 to 20 here, Lot, let's just, let's just take a minute and appreciate what Lot has seen of these angels. He's, he's been physically rescued from the crowd. They somehow, with great strength, are able to fend off an entire town full of violent men who are at the door wanting to destroy Lot. And, and, and these angels grab him, they pull him inside, they manage to get the door shut again, then they strike everybody blind. And, and unlike Paul, whose blindness allowed him to see God's goodness and turn to him, that these people's blindness, that they still remain blind to God's goodness and grace. They are blind outside the door, still groping for the door, trying to continue with their sin. Lot has seen all of this, and yet he doubts that their plan of rescue will work. <laughs> they tell him, hey, escape to the hills. This is the only way you can escape with your life. And he's like, ah, no, no, I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. He doesn't believe that they can save him. He's so gripped by the compelling deceit of sin, some attachment he has to this city that he wants to escape to a smaller city that's destined for destruction. Most scholars believe that, that whatever it was that he loved about the city here, that, that, that he couldn't imagine life without it, and so he wanted a smaller version of it, and that's why he wanted to escape to this other city, Zoar. He is so deceived and gripped by this compelling deceit of the sin that he, he doesn't trust these angels who have miraculously rescued him. 
And so he pleads and pleads and pleads, will you just let me go to the, it's just a little city. You could spare that little city. And they, they extend great mercy. You know, the reality is, though, that sin will constantly deceive us. Our sin, our desires, the, the flesh inside that, that wants to entertain our sinful desires from our sinful nature, it will deceive us in order to keep us in its grip. We'll believe that our sin just isn't that bad. <laughs> we'll compare it with somebody else and we'll continue on. We'll believe that we're entitled to, to something and so we'll continue to operate with this selfish entitlement. Sin's grip on us is compelling and it, it is based in lies. You know, Scripture calls us to mortify sin, to kill sin, to, to, to not let it grow and, and to take it out when it's small. And this is a whole other series. It's a whole other sermon. So I'm not going to dive into that. But I will tell you that if we want to escape the grip of sin and its compelling deceit, if we don't want to live in this land of horrific comparison and compromise and selfish entitlement, we have to mortify our sin. We have to destroy it. And if you want a resource on that, if you need help on that, sharethelife.org. We put a button up there just this morning. links you to an article, 13 Steps You Can Take, full of Scripture. Uh, I want to encourage you to do that. There's also 50 copies of it out at the Welcome Center if you want to pick up a paper copy on your way out. We must kill sin or it will be killing us. Somebody famous has said that, and my wife says it all the time, and I can't remember who besides my wife said it, but it's a good line. <laughs> it's important. So in summary, if we summarize what we see here in God's heart and character, in sin's heart and character, we see this. God's heart and character it is faithful and trustworthy. It is the only way to life. The rescue that's offered to Lot is the only way that he can be saved. It's the only path to life. Sin's heart and character is arrogant and self-reliant, and it only always leads to death. It only leads to death. I want you to think about these two realities, about the heart and character of God and the heart and character of sin. As we go back to the two dangers that face us in this text, what are the ways that we tend to downplay our own sin? How do you justify sin through comparison and compromise? How are you compelled by sin's deceit? It will only lead us to death. The reality is Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us escape this. We downplay it, but it's still there. We have sinned and fallen short. And the other reality about sin, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We have earned death by our sin. What are the ways that you downplay the sin in your life? When you look at God, what do you see? Do you see the entire heart and character of God? Or are you, you bl so blinded by his mercy and this idea of love that you can't imagine a God that has the justice and the righteousness to actually ever deal with sin and punish sin? 
Do you look at God and see only his justice so that the people around you in your life never see the mercy of God displayed? When you look at God, what do you see? You see his entire heart and character. You know, this is one of those passages that is tempting for people, and for for generations, people have looked at one of these passages, this passage and others like it, and they're tempted, we're tempted to see an Old Testament God that's different than Jesus, that that is different than the, the God of the New Testament. But today as we close, I want to invite you, I want you to call you to see in Jesus the embodiment of the heart and character of God. Both his justice and his mercy are on display perfectly. Romans 3.26 says that Jesus is both just and the justifier. He lived a perfect life. And he knows that my sin and yours demands death because God is just and he is righteous. And so Jesus, he took my place and he took yours and he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. He was the object of God's perfect justice and righteousness because our sin has earned that death, but he himself is also the justifier. And and we see in, in our passage today this vivid picture of the angels grabbing the hands of Lot and his family in mercy to take them out. And we see on the cross as Jesus is hanging, he can't reach his hand because it's nailed to the timber, but the thief next to him Who's, who's, who's calling upon him and, and recognizing that he is the son of God. He's done nothing in his life to deserve God's mercy. He can't deserve it. He is dying justly, but he calls out and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. In Jesus, we have God's perfect justice and his perfect mercy displayed on the cross. My friends, today Jesus reaches his hand out to you and to me. Will you take it? Will you turn to God in praise and worship and receive this mercy that is extended in the hand that was nailed to that cross? My friends, today... Take the hand of Jesus. It is the only way to life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today nothing but dust and ashes. I pray, Lord, that today your spirit would search us Lord, help us to see what only you can truly see with your eyes that are perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And Lord, reveal to us the depths of our need for a Savior. And Lord, I pray that today, I pray that nobody would resist the mercy that you offer us in the person and work of Jesus. Lord, help us to walk forward today Help us to walk forward in the work that Jesus has done so that we can have life. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.
Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.